So Father, now, as we come to your word, we ask that what we do not know, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us by your spirit through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, church. I hope, thank you. I hope y'all are all doing well today. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Um, I'm certainly glad to be here with you this morning and to see each and every one of you. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg Baker. I have the privilege and the honor to serve as one of the deacons here at Grace, as well as leading our fifth and sixth grade ministry that we call The Bridge. Um, As I hope y'all know by now, uh, on Sunday mornings we've been going through the book of Luke, and we've been looking at Jesus' interactions, his conversations that he's been having with the Pharisees and the disciples and others at at the dinner table, at uh, as they share a meal. And so, as we dive into these texts, we aren't just looking at the lessons that Jesus is teaching us, we're also looking at why he would be teaching this at a meal. Why does he choose the table as a place um, for such teaching? And Chad, I think, has been doing a really good job of guiding us through what Jesus is saying and the things he's teaching us, but also pressing us to see our tables a little differently, to see uh, sharing meals as opportunities to spread the gospel. And if you would agree that Chad has been doing a good job, I also would like to apologize. Because this has not been some long-winded introduction. Chad is not waiting in the green room to run on stage. You are stuck with me for the whole sermon. Um, but I know that we can get through it together. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we will, we will dig into Luke chapter 14. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, you are an awesome and powerful God. You are mighty and righteous. You are just and holy. You are loving and merciful to us, your people, though we have nothing we can offer. We're thankful for this day. We're thankful for the opportunity to be gathered here in your presence as your people. Um, I I pray that throughout the course of this service, that you would be among us, that you would be glorified above all else. I ask that you would give me words to speak and the congregation ears to hear. I pray that your Holy Spirit would pierce our hearts and our minds and our souls to teach us the things that we need to learn and to make us the servants that your kingdom needs. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Amen. So again, we're going to start in Luke chapter 14. I'll be reading, uh, starting in verse 1 from the ESV. Uh, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So this first section of our passage kind of sets the stage for us. Jesus is once again dining with the Pharisees. Uh, Sabbath meals like this one would have been very common in Jesus' day. Um, This probably would have been a breakfast because they would have had to prepare the meal the day before. 
Um, and, they were, and there were meals to spend with family and friends. So at kind of a first glance, it seems to be the Pharisees kind of befriending Jesus, inviting him into this, uh, to this meal at a high-ranking uh, official's home. But when we take a little bit deeper look, we see that this is less than friendly. Let's, let's read verse 1 again when it says, One Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were wa- and they were watching him carefully. And it's this word, watching, that really kind of gives the Pharisees away. Uh, the word here in the original uh, language is paratereo, and it certainly doesn't lead us to think that they were watching or listening attentively in order to learn something. They weren't looking for a lesson. They were out to get him. The connotation is that of skepticism and even malice. They were looking for something wrong with Jesus. We see this unfold in verse 2. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. We kind of see this plan, um, this scheme come to light. It's hard to think that this man would have been at the at the meal by accident. This is, this is part of the trap. And Jesus had healed on the Sabbath before. The Pharisees thought they had a situation where, hey, if we can get him to heal again, if we can give or put shame on him, if we can show the people he doesn't honor the Sabbath, he's not of God, they should follow us. You should follow us, not Jesus. But Jesus is not fooled. Um, don't worry. As we're going to get to in a second, this does not go well for the Pharisees. He knows exactly what they're doing and decides to kind of go along with their game, but, but to flip it around and turn it on them to put them to shame instead of him having shame. Throughout the gospel, the gospels, we see that Jesus is masterful at this. He's an expert at finding these specific circumstances that reveal something about his audience's heart. And that's exactly what he does here. Now the Pharisees don't get much credit for really anything, much less being the sharpest tools in the shed. And and, and usually they don't deserve it. But but I will give them credit. At least they've kind of learned when Jesus is asking a bit of a rhetorical question. At least they didn't just blurt out, no, you can't heal him. Um, So they just stay silent and they wait to see what Jesus is going to do next. So in verse 4 it says, but they remain silent And then Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So when we look back, we see that there are actually 39 activities that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Just just 39, and they kind of fall into four categories. They couldn't make a meal. They couldn't fashion clothing. They couldn't work leather goods. uh, And they couldn't build any sort of structure. Um, And when we analyze this and we think about what the other things that Jesus teaches us earlier in the book of Luke and in other places in the Gospels about the Sabbath, we find it clear that these prohibitions are a gift. And not just a gift of Rest, not just a gift to take a break, but a gift for us to reflect on the fact that our provision is not from ourselves. Our provision is not in our labor, it is in the Lord. But there's nothing in there about 
not caring for someone, not helping someone. Um, Earlier in Luke, Jesus teaches specifically about the Son of Man being the Lord of the Sabbath. He is pointing us to say that the Sabbath is about being in line with God's heart. The Sabbath is not about a set of rules, and especially not about a set of exceptions that they would have made up, like being able to pull your ox out of a well. Um, And that's really obvious to us, looking back, but it was obviously a a really, kind of a blind spot for the Pharisees, and that's why Jesus presses it. He sees their hearts, and, and he addresses these things. I mean, the Pharisees were a group a group of men that had been formed a few hundred years earlier during the intertestamental period specifically to separate themselves from a culture who had kind of fallen away from a careful obedience of the law. If anyone should have gotten this, if anyone should have understood um, what these laws were, what they meant, how they were pointing us to God's heart, it should have been these men. And yet, as humans tend to do, they had taken something good, they had taken a gift from the Lord, and they had made it central. They had made it primary. They had replaced God with their rules. So, as I, as I kind of alluded to or said when I first got up here, one of the things I get to do at Grace is teach our 5th our and 6th grade ministry, and I've, I've really loved it. We're coming in our second year now, and it's been a lot of fun, and and Brent Calhoun um, is kind of my partner in crime. If y'all, if y'all know him, that's good. If not, he's over here. Y'all can, uh, y'all can go talk to him after the service. But uh, I really love having him. He's a, he's a great guy. He's a good example to me of, uh, of being a good teacher and being a good father. Um, and one of the things that I love about him is that he's always looking for the teaching moment. Um, I can't tell you how many times we've been playing a game around here or sitting at a meal at camp or doing whatever it is. He said, hey, wait, wait, wait. Y'all sit down. I need to teach y'all something. Um, and that's kind of that's what God does here. And what Jesus says here. Read with me in verse 7. He says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Like, I have seen this exact thing. I've been outside in the front going to camp, telling the boys what car they were going to sit in, and hear them all start whining about who has to sit with boring Mr. Greg and who gets to go with Mr. Brent. And just like Mr. Brent would calm them all down and say, whoa, 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 let me teach you something, Jesus has a Pharisee. Jesus sees the Pharisees jockeying, or has a parable. He sees the Pharisees jockeying for position, trying to get to the places of honor, and he says, let me teach you something. Pick up with me in verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you uh, be invited by him, and he who has invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest, so that when your host comes, he might say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Talmud, the Hebrew Bible, does talk about um, these kind of seated, seating arrangements, and it does talk about um, 
places near the center being of more honor and kind of on the left is the second place of honor and on the right the third um, but the but the Pharisees here have obviously taken this way too far they have extended this to the nth degree and Jesus uses these selfish attitudes to teach them that they hadn't just replaced God with these set of rules they had replaced humility um, with pride and self-centeredness so he starts the lesson first with what appears to just kind of be some practical advice. Where should you sit whenever you go to a wedding banquet? Where should you sit whenever you go to some sort of large gathering? And I think we can kind of get on board with what Jesus is saying. We can relate to this. If Nobody wants to be the guy who, man, he gets there first and he's standing at the door and he's so excited to get in. As soon as they open it, he sprints in and he sits right next to the host. And as the host comes in, he says, no, no, no. M- move down. I mean, that's complete embarrassment. And, but the guy who, who shows up at the right time, holds the door for people, waits to talk, asks how everyone is, and then is called forward, called as a friend, or called as a friend to come closer to the host, even if those two people end up in the same chair, one is embarrassed and the other is exalted. So what I want us to see here is that this is not just some homely advice. This is not just, where should I sit when I go somewhere? This is Jesus taking this kind of culture of social etiquette, self-seeking, political positioning, and really turning it on its head. I mean, it's right there in verse 11. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is different He's saying, in my kingdom, in the kingdom of God, those who consistently look out for number one, who are willing to lie and cheat and steal to get ahead at every turn, will be humbled. They will learn at the end of the day that all of these, um, all of these efforts are futile. God values though, those who understand their lowly position in light of God's character. God understands... Or God values people who are humble. And he raises those people up. He makes them sons and daughters. And this kind of reversal, this um, flipping this culture on his head, doesn't just stop there. He continues on as he addresses generosity. Read with me in verse 12, when he says, He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus says, by the way, do not think you're getting away with this fake generosity stuff where you just in, you invite one person and they invite a third person and you end up just kind of going around of this circle of uh, giving each other things. That's not true generosity. I mean, even we as normal people can, can always see through the person who shows up at the charity banquet or does some act of service just to be seen doing it. I mean, how much more is the God of the universe whose, whose eyes pierce our hearts and our souls going to understand when we are trying to fool him with disingenuous acts of kindness? It just doesn't work. God is going to see through that every time, and he says that that is not what his kingdom is going to be about. He says in verse 13, when you give a feast, this is what you should be doing, Invite the poor, 
the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here we see Jesus call us to the exact opposite of what the Pharisees have done from the beginning of this passage. Stop worrying so much about yourself. Stop worrying so much about your social position, about how much money you have, about how many parties you get to go to, and invest all of that time and energy into those who can't pay you back. Come to the aid of those who may never have the strength to lift you up in return. Clear a path for those who may not even be able to see to find a path of their own. This is true generosity. And Jesus is telling us that in his kingdom there is no room for anything less. But once again, Jesus is not done with us. He has more. Another parable, and this is where we're going to really, really focus in. So in, in verse 15 it says, When one who had reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. We've got to talk about this guy for a second. Now, I know y'all are a lot smarter than me, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this verse exactly. Part of me thinks that this guy just has no idea what's going on. He hasn't really been listening, and he just hears this last bit about, about being... Uh, about being repaid at the resurrection of the just, and he's, man, he's pumped. He's like, yeah, that's us. Jesus loves us the, whole, the most. We're going we're gonna to be in his kingdom at the end days. It's going to be great. Woohoo! Part of me thinks, Jesus finishes his first parable, and everything just goes quiet. People start looking around. They don't really know what to do or say. And this guy's just trying to break the ice. This guy's just trying to move on and change the subject. I was, I was texting Chad about that. That's kind of, that was kind of his take on it. And I said that this must have been just like the ancient Hebrew version of like, so, uh, how about them cowboys? But regardless, it, does, it doesn't face Jesus. He wasn't as confused as me. And in fact, he, he just ramps straight into it. He goes straight past it, right into his parable, and frankly, one that's probably going to be pretty scary to this guy. Read with me in verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Let me just make sure y'all are with me. These are really bad excuses. Like, I have a two-year-old, and I teach 13, 5th, and 6th grade boys every week. I know bad excuses. These are bad. I mean, just, just look at them. The first guy, he has this land. I'm going to go see it. Does that mean you didn't go see it before you bought it? 
Does that mean you just bought it sight unseen? I doubt it. Same thing with the guy with the oxen. Like, oxen were by far the most important beast of burden, most important domesticated animal at this time. And five yoke of oxen, five teams, which would have been ten total animals, like, that is a huge investment. That is enough to work an enormous plot of land. There is absolutely no way that he would have bought these without inspecting them first. And by the way, he doesn't know he now owns them. He can go see them any time. Same thing with the land. This is not, these are not pressing issues. The third at least seems to be a little bit better, right? I mean, I got married once. It was a big deal. I would have skipped another party to go to my own wedding. But you know what we did so that people wouldn't plan things during our wedding is we sent out invitations. And we sent out save the dates. So they would have done the exact same thing here. A banquet of this size doesn't just happen and then they invite people. They would have sent out invitations maybe months before. It would take an immense preparation to put something like this together. So they would have taken a poll. How many people are going to be there? How many animals do we need to slaughter? How much wine do we need to gather? Something like this may have been several days long. How many beds do I need to get out? It was a big deal. And the bottom line is that these are not good reasons. These are excuses. These are people who have just decided that this banquet is not that important and they're not going to go. And and I'm kind of making fun of them, and, and it is kind of, it is easy to say that they're just silly. It is easy to say, how could they not see what was right in front of them? But, but I do want to be a little bit careful about that. Um, and I want us to take care because of a certain uh, hermeneutic that I hold to, um, which I think is really useful and quite convicting. And it goes something like this. When you look at a passage, and you begin to draw parallels to your own life, and you begin uh, to find applications and ways that you can be obedient, and you see somebody doing something real stupid, that's probably you. <laughs> um, now, I didn't get to go to Jared's hermeneutics class the other day. And that probably wasn't in there. Um, but maybe it should have been. <laughs> Although, but I do think it's right. I do think that it would be foolish of us um, to just... To, to not put ourselves in these people's shoes. I think it would be irresponsible to look at this and say, no, 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 this story is just about the religious elite turning their back on the Lord and then God extending his, um, extending his invitation to the rest of the Jewish people and to the Gentiles and just move on from this portion of the passage. That, that's not enough. Jesus is telling us more. There's more to learn here. We need to take this as a constant reminder that we can make these same mistakes. We can make these same excuses. Notice it doesn't say that these are the only three people. It says it was everybody. And these three are just kind of representative examples of how we can get it wrong. How many of us have put work ahead of our relationship with the Lord? How many of us have put a relationship, whether it be a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, brother, sister, best friend ahead of our relationship with God? How many people have become so complacent with the Lord that we'll kind of take any excuse? We're all tempted to get this wrong. We all face busy times and difficult circumstances. 
But in those times, we need to be reminded by passages like this about how serious God is about being the most important thing in your life. Hey, these are very stern words, and they're only going to get more stern in the, in the next portion of our passage. Read with verse 21. It says, So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my, blank, or my banquet. You know, the master hears the news and he tells the servant, Man, I'm so excited for that guy who's got that new land. I'm so excited about that new oxen. Man, here's a gift for that guy who got married. That's so cool. No. He's angry. He's mad, and rightfully so. He would have invested a huge amount of time and energy into a banquet like this. Not to mention just the pure disgrace of having these people give up this great honor that he's bestowed upon them. But refusing to have his banquet empty, he sends out his servants to scour the city, searching high and low to replace those who had dishonored him. And in the same way, God has indeed extended the invitation to his kingdom beyond the religious and social elite of that day. First to the Jewish people within the city, and then to the highways and hedges, to us. Look again with me at, at verse 23 where it says, Compel people to come into my house, or to come in that my house may be filled. I love that. I love that the master is not satisfied with an empty banquet. That God is not satisfied with an empty kingdom. He will have a people. He will have a people, and he will draw them to himself. He will send his servants to compel them. And not compel them because they have something better to do. We don't need urging. We don't need compelling because there's something better for us. We need urging and compelling because we shouldn't be able to believe that we're invited it should be so foreign that we should be able to receive a gift so good that we have to be made to come in. Church, we've got to be excited about this. This is our hope. We are those outcasts. We are the poor with nothing to offer for our salvation. We are the crippled, made powerless by sin. We are the blind, unable to see the truth of Jesus. And we are the lame, unable to come to God on our own. But through Jesus, through this man, through his perfect life, his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection three days later, the gates are open. The invitation is to us. We can be heirs in his kingdom. You can be one of his people. And this book is full from one or from the first page to the last of a God who loves his people, who is for his people, who is faithful to his people no matter the cost, even the cost of his own son. 
And if that wasn't enough, God doesn't stop there. Because unlike the banquet in this story, God's kingdom isn't going to end after a week or two weeks or a month. God's kingdom is everlasting and it is ever growing. And if you have been invited to that kingdom, if you have come to his table, then he has bestowed upon you the highest privilege he possibly could and that is to go out and compel others if you have accepted this invitation you now have the joy to tell others of the richness of God's love and the mighty work of his son and what better way to do that than to go out eating and drinking what better way than to think of our dinner tables, or our picnic tables, or our Chick-fil-A tables, even our conference tables at work, more like tables of the banquet feast. Tables that reflect the generosity and the glory of the kingdom we are now invited to. We have got to see our meals, our tables, as places of opportunity to share the gospel, to tell people that they are broken, that they are poor and blind and crippled, but that God is so good, he loved us so much that he sent his son to live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins. Now I'm about done, but I do want to leave you with kind of one thought to to kind of bring all this stuff together, because as I was kind of writing my outline for today, I got to this point and I thought, that I'd kind of covered a lot of ground pretty fast and I had skated over a lot of it. But, but I do want us to see this. I do want us to see that there is a, a line of reasoning of why Jesus would have exposed these Pharisees' misplaced value of rules, um, why he would have shown them the value of humility and generosity before he preaches this parable. Um, that there is a connection here. There is a common thing. And, and I'm convinced that the line of reasoning is this. Jesus shows the Pharisees their legalism, their self-centeredness and their pride, because genuine humility and grace and generosity only come from sitting at his table. Jesus wants to see that the Pharisaic order had now been around for a couple of hundred years, and they had been striving to save themselves by, pure, or by being pure and holding up the law. And that had pushed them in the exact opposite direction. It had pushed them away from God. They didn't need to grit their teeth and bare their fists and try harder and harder and harder. They needed to accept their invitation. And from that, from accepting it, from sitting at his table, flows an ever-growing understanding of how broken we really are. And that leads us back out. The more we grasp our blindness and crippledness, the more glorious his grace will seem and the more compassion we will have for others. It is only as God strips us of our pride, as he strips us of our selfishness and grants us humility and generosity that we can go and compel others. And I pray that that would be the case for every one of us this morning. That God would be continuing to strip you 
of those sinful things and he would be adding to you humility and grace. Before I, before I quit, I, just, I do want to say this. If anybody has got questions about this Jesus guy, if anybody kind of hears this and says, I don't know about all of that, but, but I do know that, that, there's something, that there's something wrong with me I don't know if I can fix myself. Um, and, and maybe this Jesus guy is the answer. I, I'm going to be in the back of the room on, on y'all's left side, and so please come and talk to me. I, I'm not going to ask you a million questions. Um, but I do want to tell you that we love you and that we will stand by you and pray for you and be here for you. So let's pray this morning. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a group of your people. We thank you for the opportunity to come and to hear your word preached and hear your word read, hear your word sung. Um, we thank you for lavishing us with a, with a grace that we cannot understand um, without being at your table. We thank you for the wonderful work that you have done in the lives of many in this room. We thank you for the work that you are doing in the rest of us. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.